Mac Power Users, Episode 110, Sharing a Mac. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie. How are you doing? I'm good. And, and we're sticking with the Mac again this week. You know, we are Mac Power Users, after all. Yeah, once in a while, we just got to surprise people. I know. And this is a subject that I get questions about all the time and finally just stuck it in the outline and we figured it's about time that we did a show on it. And that is the idea of of sharing a Mac. And yeah. it's not something that I personally do quite a bit. I know you do, but a lot of our listeners share Macs, whether it's with their spouses, with their family, with their kids, with their grandkids, um, or even with colleagues in the work environment. Yeah, that's a new one. I haven't heard of many people doing that, but I know in the family situation, it's very common to share a Mac. So if you've been a Mac user for a long time, which I know you were and then switched away and then came back, the idea of user accounts was was kind of a foreign concept for a while because in the OS 6, 7, 8, 9 days, there really – I guess there were some user accounts – in one, maybe in OS 9 for a little while, but not in any sense like there is um, in, in Mac OS 10, which is very user account-based. I mean, obviously, because it's got a Unix core, which is very user-based. Yeah, you know, I have to admit, back in the day when I was on the original Mac and a few after that, be- before I had to go to Windows for a few years, uh, there was no such thing as user switching. I mean, there wasn't even really thing as application uh, multitasking at that time, but the uh, the idea of having different user accounts was completely foreign to me. It first showed up to me on Windows, and I just took it for granted that it'd be on the Mac when I came back to the Mac. And and of course, Apple does it with a little more panache than than Windows does. So one of the things that I think new Mac users get a little foreign to the concept of because it's it's different. App, Apple implements the idea of user accounts a little bit differently, I think, than Windows users does is um, maybe we should talk a little bit about the user's folder and the stuff that's in there. Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to start because really, uh, on your Mac, the user folder is where your stuff is. And it's nice because it's self-contained. I, I guess that's part of the Unix, but it's also just smart planning on Apple's behalf. Uh, so if you look in your user folder, you've got subfolders in there for your, your um, pictures, your movies, your music, and your documents, among other things. And I've had novice or first-time Mac users even ask me, what is the user folder? What is this user folder thing you're talking about? And sometimes I describe it to them as it's the little house or the little thing with your name on it because most people, their user accounts are their names and their, you know, my short name for my user account is Katie because my username is Katie Floyd. And a lot of people don't even know, okay, what is my user folder? Because I think now the finder just defaults to opening in your user folder. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. In fact, it's harder and harder with each new release of Mac OS X to get out of your user folder. And it's really a good idea to to follow some of the defaults that Apple has set for you and to keep your stuff in the user folder. Because especially if you're coming from the older days where everything was really at the, you know, there wasn't anything but the root level of the system. Yeah. Now, well, I do remember when we were sharing an old system, you know, we would have Katie's folders and mom's folder and dad's folder, and we would kind of separately set up our own user's folder, but there was no segregation of the system by user folder. It was just, this is Katie's stuff, this is brother's stuff, this is mom's stuff, and and things like that. 
But inside the user folder, Apple people will know when they log in and they'll find, you know, straight out of the box has set up a couple of folders for you. There's a, a documents folder, a downloads folder, a movies folder, a music folder, a pictures folder, a public folder, and I think a sites folder. I think that's what comes by default in a user folder. Yeah. And but but you quickly add to it. For instance, if you're a Dropbox user, that's one that always goes in there very quickly when I set up a new Mac. Yeah, and I've actually created a couple of different folders in mine. One one that I keep in there, kind of in the root level of my user folder, is something called a databases folder, which is which is where I store kind of all those little database files that go with specific applications that I can't ever quite figure out where else to put them. That's a good idea. I've never thought of that before. I, what I usually do with that is put them in a subfolder in the documents folder. You can do that too, but it's got like, you know, my chronosync jobs or my busy cow backups and my max speech dictate, you know, profile and OmniFocus backups and, um, you know, know, kind of database files for different applications. An interesting thing about all this is we're kind of in this transition period between local storage and cloud storage. And the user folder in some ways is antiquated because – it's it's local storage of your data that really isn't put up on the cloud unless you take extra steps. And in some ways, it's kind of quaint when you look in there, like that documents folder, that stuff isn't up on the cloud. So I'm always a little, you know, that gets less and less traffic from me because something I put there is only going to be on that computer. Well, my documents folder actually is up in the cloud, but only because I've created a symbolic link of it up to Dropbox. Yeah, and you've talked about that in prior episodes. So um, I guess we shouldn't go through the whole process now, but just explain in concept what you did there. Well, what I think in contrast to what you've done is you simply use your Dropbox folder kind of as your documents folder for everything that you want to sync to the cloud. Yes. Or to, to the Dropbox cloud. Because there are a couple of different clouds now. You've got the Dropbox cloud, the iCloud cloud. Yeah. You know, we've got a couple of different buckets that we put stuff in. What What I did instead because I've got some different folders set up in my user folder for different things, is I've just said, you know what? My documents folder is really just going to be for documents. And what I've done is, uh, so that's kind of why I wanted to get all those database type things and backup type things out of the documents folder and put them in more in the root level of my, my user directory. And that was just kind of an organizational decision that I made. But the documents folder is only for documents. So as a result, my documents folder, I think, is less than two or three gigs in size because they're really just text files. There's some bigger keynote files in there, but not much. Uh, So what I did is I created a symbolic link from my documents folder and created one into my Dropbox folder, which now doesn't move anything physically on my hard drive, but it's, it's, it's one of those little hacky tricks that will allow Dropbox to now back up your documents folder. So anything that gets stored in my documents folder is now automatically in my Dropbox. Yeah. Well, and you, I wish you can I, Google that. There's more stuff on there. Yeah, there's a million explanations about that on the internet. So go find it. Yeah, my documents folder is kind of a wasteland. You know, it's got my Microsoft Remote Desktop connection. It's got my uh, uh, my dictation profile and you know, just little things like that. I really have got most of my stuff up in the cloud these days. I do have like my tax records and stuff on that because I don't want them going out to the uh, Dropbox and getting put up there. So uh, really sensitive financial stuff I will I will keep in there, and then that gets backed up through other backup means, which you could probably go listen to one of our several prior backup shows if you're interested in that. Yeah. 
Um, so there are a couple of special fo- – I mean, obviously, the, the music folder is where iTunes, uh, your iTunes library is by default stored, and we'll talk about why you may or may not want to move that. Your pictures folder is by default where your iPhoto library is by default stored. Um, and I've got some other stuff in that picture folder. I've got, like, I think some iChat icons, and um, it's it's at some point it's got software in there that was set up with an old scanner that I used, and that's where it stored stuff by default, and my sketch folder was in there. But then there are a couple of special folders in there we should probably talk about. Um, hey, I got, I got a power tip for your pictures folder. Okay. Uh, just create a folder in there called Wallpaper. Uh-huh. And if you like to put wallpaper on your Mac, uh, put it all in that folder. And then in the uh, the wallpaper selection screen, or was it the back desktop background screen, they call it in the preferences, you can add that as a preferred directory so you can get to it very easily. Well, I'm always fiddling with wallpaper. Right now it's just gray, but sometimes I go nuts. Is it the gray linen? That's what mine is. No, mine's just actually just the color gray. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, can we talk about the public folder now? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Let's uh, talk about the public folder. <laughs> it's very exciting. So the the public folder and the Dropbox folder, Dropbox two words folder, are these two folders that just seem to befuddle people. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's really confusing. The Dropbox folder. And, and I have a lot of trouble explaining to people how the public folder works and how the Dropbox folder works. And then it got ultimately more complicated when Dropbox, the service came about and I just have trouble explaining to people, no, no, no. Dropbox is different from Dropbox. Don't yeah. just don't use the second Dropbox. Only use the first Dropbox. No, 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 yeah. not that one. The other one. So let, let's make it clear for the show. There's two word Dropbox and one word Dropbox. Yes. And or, the one word Dropbox is the, the proper service. noun. Yeah, it's all the it's the service that all nerds love. Dropbox, right? Dropbox.com. We did I think we did a whole show on Dropbox. We did. So that's a great thing. But there's a different it's the Dropbox with two words, and that's what Katie's talking about. Yeah. It, it so, actually predates the Dropbox service. Yeah. So everything that's inside your user folder is yours. It cannot be seen or sh- or accessed by other users of your Mac generally. And I'm going to say generally because they're – or maybe by default because there are certain things you can do to change that. But let's say by default, the stuff in your user folder cannot be seen, shared, or accessed with other users of your Mac. So users are segregated on the Mac. Your stuff is private from David's stuff, is private from my stuff, is private from anybody else's stuff that uses your Mac. Except – for things that you put in the public folder. You know, the public folder is like this little shared room between the multiple users in the Mac. It's it's is it like the no man's land or the peace zone or you know the the, uh, the neutral zone maybe. Where everybody okay. can go and get stuff. Yeah, all right. I'll take that. You'll take the neutral zone? Yeah. Okay. So, if you put things in your public folder, they now become available to other users on your Mac. And the Dropbox folder, what I, what I like to call the Dropbox folder is, I don't know, um, gosh, I haven't seen one of these in a long time, but you know a mail slot in a door? Yeah, that's exactly the analogy I use for this. Okay. So you, you stick something in the mail slot in a door, and once you stick it in, it's gone. So the Dropbox folder is a place where you can see any and everything that's in there. 
but it's otherwise just a place that people can drop stuff off for you. So that's like your mail slot. So if one of the other users on your Mac wants to share a file with you or wants to leave a file for you, they take that folder and they put it in your Dropbox. Dropbox, two words. And yeah. and it's like once it goes in, they never see it again. It's in your Dropbox. It's gone through the mail slot. They can't stick their hand in and reach in and grab it and pull it back out. Yeah. And so there's a reason why this doesn't work. Um, you know, the idea is... You know, opening somebody else's user file, you shouldn't be able to see their stuff. You shouldn't be able to get their pictures. You shouldn't be able to take their music. You shouldn't be able to see their movies. And so often, that is kind of a ridiculous limitation uh, in the household because between family members, I think it's pretty rare people really care much. At least in my family, nobody does. Uh, but in the workplace, it makes a ton of sense. Although, I'm like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not very, I, I, I don't think it's very often that you have people sharing a Mac. But so the idea is you go into someone else's user holder and all you're going to get is that public folder. And inside the public folder is that Dropbox. And if you put something there, um, it goes in, like Katie says, you can't get it back out. Not only can you not get it back out, you can't see what other people are putting in there. So the only person that sees the contents of that Dropbox are the owner. And I, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that uses this on a daily basis or is, has this as a part of their workflow. I mean, I just, yeah. have you ever seen anybody do this? There are just so many better ways to do things now. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners to this podcast. So if somebody honestly uses this thing all the time, please write and let us know because I, I'm, I'd i be shocked if anybody does. And, but and don't just write us and tell us you use it. Tell us what problem it solves for you. Yeah. And, and this made some sense before the one word dropbox existed and before you know some of the other cloud services ex- existed and even apple has deprecated this in some degree with airdrop which is a way to easily share files between macs in the same household or workplace and i know this is off target for our show our show is talking about sharing one mac but there's just so many easier ways to share files and you know then there's thumb drives and there's you know portable hard drives and there's yeah, there's just so many things you can do these days oh yeah network attached storage and yeah. it's and possibilities are endless yeah so you know this dropbox exists but i don't think it even really matters so i guess we shouldn't talk about it very long well it was so a dro- solution to a problem that existed at the time yeah so it's there and if you want a way for people to drop stuff into your into your user folder without seeing what else is there, it's wired for that. Great. Right. Now, and it's still there in Mountain Line. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it just disappears one day. Well, I think in order for it all to disappear, Apple's got to seriously re- rework the whole users and groups system. Yeah. Because there's there's really not a good mechanism yet to share documents and to share information natively in the Mac. I mean, all of the solutions that we're talking about to share documents and share things between users on a Mac are really third-party solutions. Apple really hasn't come up with their own solution to this problem. And, you know, Apple doesn't like to rely on third-party solutions. They like to pretend like, you know, you're on an island in and of itself and there's nothing else out there. Yeah. No other products exist. But I guess, you know, just kind of rounding up, the the whole point of this user folder is to give you a container for your stuff and to keep your stuff away from other people's stuff. And this is a uh, a good idea, but can also lead to troubles uh, when you try and share a Mac because you're going to have your iTunes account, and it's in that music folder in your account. 
and you're going to start loading it up. And maybe you've got CDs that is generally the property of the whole family. Everybody, you know, loves whatever, you know, they might be giant. So you, you rip it in and you say, okay, I ripped it in. Then your wife or your kids say, well, wait a second. I don't have that on my iTunes. What's wrong with it? And the problem is they've logged in in their user account and they've got their own iTunes in their music folder and they would need to rip it again. It doesn't by it doesn't natively or just obviously share that music across all of the users. So unless you take steps and we did an iTunes show to kind of explain how you get around this, but unless you take steps with all of these things, you could end up with, you know, if you've got four users, four times the amount of data stored on the hard drive because everybody's doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and that's really something you just need to be aware of as a big problem. If you're going to be sharing a computer. Yeah. Did I get that right? I guess. I, I think you got it right. Yeah. I, I hope I don't sound cranky about it, but it's just something that it's a trap that people fall in without it's, realizing it. They fill up their hard drive before they know it. It's uncharacteristically inelegant of Apple. Yeah. I, I don't think Apple has cracked this problem. And, and if you look at the iPad and the iPhone, well, the iPad, I think more appropriately, the iPhone is a personal device by its own nature. It's your phone number and your device, but an iPad should be something you can share, and they haven't even tried that. I, they'd just really rather you buy a whole bunch of iPads. Everybody in your household needs iPads, yeah. which I think you finally just caved into, haven't you? Yeah, we're we're going to do an after dark. If you're uh, in, if you're into that, we're going to talk about the new iPad Mini and my enlightening experience at the Microsoft Store with Adam Christensen last night. It'll be fun, really. Ooh. All right, so stay tuned. All right, so talking about user accounts. Uh, should we talk about the different types of accounts and then maybe why you should set up separate user accounts for your Mac? Because I know so many people who, you know, husbands, wives, families who just set up, you know, your Mac comes with one user account when you log in and create it and they just keep it that way. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. So, uh, so user accounts are the, um, each person has an account and then, but there's different types of accounts with different authorities and settings. So let's just go through and cover what those are. Okay, well, there's the there's the administrative account, which I think is the default when you set up a brand new account, and that's the account that can do just about everything on your Mac. You can control it, you can install programs, you can operate it, you can add or delete other accounts. You've got the power. Yeah, if you're a video game player, this is God mode. <laughs> um, now, we have advised in the past that although you everybody has to have an admin account on their machine, is it necessarily a good idea to run day-to-day in an admin account? Well, it can get you in trouble if you've got errant software or someone who doesn't know what they're doing because an admin account assumes that you know what you're doing and assumes that you're monitoring your software. So if you get something on there that's going to cause trouble and you have an admin account, there's a much greater capacity for damage. With godlike power comes godlike responsibility. So someone needs to have or at least have access to an admin account, but not everybody needs an admin account. So okay. just yeah. don't, so, don't make that the default level of account that you set for everybody on your Mac. So and the, the logic is for power nerds to, uh, to make an admin account and just leave it dormant and then make yourself a standard account that you actually work in. So if there's some kind of problem, you can always revert back to the clean admin account. And we've talked about this over the years on the show, and it, now it's time to be honest. Katie, do you do that? 
I do make a, a clean admin account when I create a new Mac. Yeah, and I do, do. And do you, and you operate under a standard account? No. Okay. So I kind of yeah. have to do it, right? Yeah. Well, that's what I've done too. I have a separate admin account that I never use called admin. And then I have my regular account, which is also admin. Cause I just, you know, I just get tired of dealing. When you have a standard account, you got to type in a password when you install certain things. And it's just, it's just more trouble for me than it's worth. I've, I've just never had enough problem to justify it. Okay. So we got the admin account. There's also the standard level account, which we kind of touched on too. It can operate the Mac. It can do all the normal things It can print, but it cannot install software or create other accounts or override the settings for other accounts. Yeah. Um, Then there's what's called a managed account with parental controls. And this is great for kids, preteens, maybe teens. I mean, it's, it's up to you to, to figure out at what level your, your kids become a standard account. But, um, We'll talk more about parental controls later in the show, but but this is basically a standard account that has some restrictions on it. Yeah, it's a good thing for parents. Um, there's also what's called a sharing-only account, and that's somebody who um, doesn't actually have an account on your computer, but it's someone who may remote access into your computer. Yeah. Um, and then a group is is something that I personally have never used but it's a it's it's basically a group of a subset of people who already have an account on your computer that you can uh, give special privileges to. So you can say, you know, maybe in a family setting, if you have older kids and younger kids, you can add, you know, or you can say, okay, mom and dad are in this group and they ha- can access these things. The older kids are in this group and they can access these things, and the younger kids are in this group and they can't, you know, they can access this more limited set of things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, they've got a variety of options. So it, I think that the computer's really built around use in the home. Um, and then the last type of account is a guest account. And I think this is particularly helpful. I, I think it's helpful for a lot of people, but I think it's particularly helpful for people who don't regularly share their computer. Because even people like me, single people who live alone, occasionally have instances where somebody else will want to use their computer. And I'm a little reluctant unless I'm standing over their shoulder and I don't really want to be that person. Hi, you're my friend, but I don't trust you. Um, You know, unless I'm standing over their shoulder, I'm a little reluctant just to hand my computer over to somebody because you really don't know what they're doing. And a guest account is an account. It's a temporary account. So no matter what happens, no matter what anybody does on that account, they can do whatever they want. And as soon as you log out of that account, everything's gone. Yeah, it's, it's a great idea. Um, and I've got that set up on my account because if I've got guests over or someone staying with me and for whatever reason, and it happens less and less now because everybody's got their own laptops that they travel with or their iOS devices. But if someone needs to hop on my computer and surf the internet or check their email or print something, um, you know, it's, it's locked down anyway by default. I, they ju- I can just say, oh, yeah, just, just click the thing for guests. They can hop on the internet. They can check their hotmail, do whatever, and – you know, as soon as they log out or the computer automatically logs them out after a set amount of time, whatever they've done is gone. I, you know, you, you think you really don't need that, but it, it's so easy to create this guest account. And I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more later in the show, but I had an experience once where a friend came over and the friend's teenage son was really bored. And I said, well, you can go fiddle on the internet. And I didn't realize he was actually going to go fiddle on the internet. So I just, my computer got all screwed up. It was, it was back in my PC days and I'm like, what is all this stuff on my computer? And sure enough, 
he got in trouble. Well, and that can happen not only with, with friends, but, you know, with, with family members. It, it happens a lot, you know, if you've got, you know, if your, your kids or your grandkids, um, you know, come over for the weekend and they're bored and they're fiddling on your computer. Um, you know, I've had to clean off my grandparents' computer many times because my younger cousins have come on and just, you know, had access to their main administrative accounts and have downloaded who knows what. The other good thing is, you know, you've got, let's say you're a Facebook guy, you know, and you go on Facebook on your computer, it's going to have your own Facebook credentials in there. They're going to delete that and put theirs in, and then you're going to be stuck with theirs the next time you log in, which is really uncomfortable, right? So don't, I don't think it's being creepy by uh, putting people on this guest account. I think it's, it's perfectly uh, normal. So that's something we're going to talk about more. So I think, I think I've gone far enough down that rabbit hole for now. Uh, but so that's Just make it, one. Know. Just make yeah, one. You, yeah. So you've got admin standard. You can manage parental controls, uh, sharing only group accounts and guest accounts. And uh, it sounds a little overwhelming when you hear the list rattled off, but they're all very simple to use. And all of these are what enable you to share Mac. So what? Yeah. What? Ty- what are the types of Macs that we're going to consider sharing on? I guess the first one is is like your situation, your personal computer. Yeah, or or you have what I would consider. I, I don't know. Maybe you have your family has accounts on your person, but you have a computer that's primarily yours, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Um, and yeah. then the other kind is, I think, like you have a family iMac, right? Yes, we do. We have a, an iMac we all share. Yeah. And that one we do. We each have our own accounts. And I'll tell you, for the longest time, I didn't bother with sharing on that computer because, you know, it was kind of like the family computer. And we did have folders for documents for the kids. And at that time, the kids were pretty young. But as iCloud has emerged, it makes a lot of sense for everybody to have their own account because the kids are doing the iCloud stuff. And then that's pushing down to their to the iPad so they can work You know, they can continue where they left off. So in order for that to work, they need to have their own account. Well, that's Um, another great reason for everybody to have their own account, because more and more, even if it's not iPads and iPhones, they're at least iPods. Everybody's bringing their own devices. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk more about the reasons why you set up separate accounts, why I set up separate accounts, but we've been going for a little while. Maybe maybe we should take a quick break and talk about Gazelle. Yeah, this is a good time to talk about Gazelle. This is a great time to talk about Gazelle. I, I, I uh, have a confession. Uh-oh. I haven't done anything yet. I'm just okay. thinking about it. Just thinking about it. Um, but I put my, you know, I, I, got a, I got a quote from Gazelle for my third gen iPad. Yeah, the six-month-old iPad. The six-month-old iPad, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I went to gazelle.com. I, I told them that I had a six-month-old, um, you know, 4G iPad with Verizon and told them that it was in mint condition. And, you know, I had all the accessories. I had this other stuff. And uh, the quote was good enough and for me to get a iPad mini that I've been kind of thinking about getting. If you've been watching me on Twitter, you know, you're probably sick and tired of me talking about this whole back and forth internal struggle debate that I've been having about the iPad mini. And I was just really hoping, okay, like, please let them have dropped in value. Please let them have dropped in value. I mean, it'd be an easy decision if, if my iPad was worth nothing and I couldn't get any money for it. I was like, okay, you know, problem solved. Um, cause I, I, you know, I can't justify going out and spending a, a ton of money and taking a huge loss and going out and buy this iPad mini, but, uh, no. Yeah. So I locked in my offer with Gazelle and I've got 30 days from the date that you lock in your offer, uh, to actually ship them the iPad. Yeah. So I'm really struggling. I'm really yeah, struggling. So, so the way Gazelle works is you go, you log on, you tell them what you've got and they cover all the Apple devices. You tell them the condition of it. 
and they give you a price. And if you click OK, they send you a box and you put it in there. The postage is paid. You send it back and you get money. So you convert your Apple stuff into cash. And it's a great way to upgrade. There's no good reason to keep all these old devices around. If you think they're going to be valuable because they're rare, I got news for you. Apple sold 100 million iPads. It's not going to be rare. It's not so it's just, rare. Yep. It's just wasting space. And, you know, uh, put that thing back in circulation. Sell it to Gazelle and let them sell it to somebody. And, you know, let those devices live longer. Uh, so it's, it's Gazelle, G-A-Z-E-L-L-E dot com. You get cash. And, and what I always do, here's an insider trick. When I sell something to Gazelle, I always have them pay me in an Amazon card. And then you get an extra, I think, 5%. So, you yeah, know, you it's do. great. You know, and I if you do. shop on Amazon a lot, you know, that's that's almost as good as cash. Yeah. And, well, yeah, they sell just about everything there. It's great. Like Christmas is coming or holidays. You can have some extra money in Amazon to buy some gifts. Uh, maybe you look around your house. You'll find a couple of old iPhones. You know, I know people are out there that have them. Why not turn it into some cash? And the, the deal is Gazelle locks you in for 30 days. So, like, Katie, if you're really getting serious about this decision, you should go ahead and lock in your iPad 3 right now. And then you've got a couple of days to think about it. You go to the yeah. Apple store, yeah. you know, spend some quality time with this mini, and then you'll decide if you really, you know, want it, then you can go ahead and pull the trigger. Yeah. And more than that, they give you the 30 days because sometimes it's not easy to get these. You know, right now the iPad minis have a two week ship time and the 4G ones aren't even shipping to November. So that's nice. And, you know, the last time when I when I got rid of my iPad or my iPhone 4, I sold it through Gazelle and I did the PayPal option. You know, you can get paid by by check, by PayPal, by Amazon gift card. They make it really easy. And that was a great process. They just deposited the funds in my PayPal account and I got, you know, net what they told me I was going to get. I didn't have to worry about PayPal taking out any additional fees on the top of that. So that was really nice. Hey, I got one for you. When I sent in, because I just got the new iPhone 5, I, I sold my old iPhone 4 through Gazelle. They gave me more because I oh. clicked the wrong box. I thought it was 16 gigabytes. It was 32. I got more money. Oh, there you go. That's a good deal. Yeah. So good anyway, it, Gazelle's great. G-A-Z-E-L-L-E dot com. Uh, you know, what's your iPhone or your iPad worth? Take a minute and go to gazelle.com and find out, you know, sell your old devices, get some money or, or fund that new one that you can't wait for. And uh, thanks to Gazelle for their continued support of Mac power users. Okay. So where were we? We're talking about we the, the, the mechanics of the sharing, right? Well, we were talking about why why set up different user accounts, and we we're going to talk about the the different examples being you know like you with a family setting and more like me with an individual computer. Why it's still important to do that? Yeah. Okay, you first. Well, for me, it's because even though ninety nine percent of the time I am the only one using machine. It is not 100% that I'm the only one using this machine. So if nothing else, I want to set up a guest account for when somebody else comes over and is using this machine. And we've already talked about that. But sometimes maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're primarily the user of your machine, but maybe 10 or 20% of the time somebody else is using the machine. You know, Maybe it's your kids or your grandkids or whatnot are going to be using the machine or your spouse. It, it's it's good to have a, a guest account from them because, you know, do you really want to mingle just even even things like mingling your email? I mean, how do you how do you separate email without separate user accounts? Hey, like the answer his, is you don't. Yeah, you you don't. don't unless yeah. unless you use webmail, which you don't want to use webmail. Well, that's a that's a solution. But, you know, on a Mac, 
opening mail, you expect your mail to be there. And do you want other people having access to your mail? Right. Uh, the other thing that you can use accounts for, and I don't know if you do this or not, um, and, and this may be a more technical reason, but if if you kind of have alter egos that you use for different things, uh, do you have a separate account set up, for example, like for when you do screencasting or when you do presentations? Sadly, no. I don't. Okay. I, you know, I just kind of let it roll. When I do a screencast, it's it's my stuff. I don't put, I never put up my legal data. Uh, but even or like when I did the OmniFocus screencast, I made a set of dummy data for that. But I think people kind of dig seeing what it whatever it is I've got in the menu bar these days, and it's it's not that big of a deal to me. But I know Don does that at, at Screencast Online. And you also could set up separate accounts if you perhaps you know maybe you work from home or maybe your personal computer is your work computer. If you use them for different purposes of of business purpose and home purpose, and you really wanted to keep. Um, you know, those two purposes segregated. It's another reason for separate user accounts. Yeah. Yeah. That would work. Well, for so, me, the, the reason I use it is because of the family, you know, we've got, I've got two kids and my wife and my, so we have four people living in the house and we have one shared iMac and we definitely need separate accounts because I don't want, you know, everybody else getting into my email and screwing something up. And I don't really want to be stumbling into their email. And, uh, that's the beginning. But the iCloud is another big reason. You know, I want to see my contacts. I don't want to see somebody else's contacts. So we've got, you know, a variety of reasons that make it, you know, make or or you know what? Here's a good reason. I cannot stand all of the icons on the desk, but everybody else in my home has no problem with that. And so Clutter. whenever I look, yeah, I, I look at their desktop and it makes me crazy. And so, you know, and I, God forbid, I like move something around, but anyway, so, so I need to have my own desktop. So we all have our own space and it works great. Uh, the one thing we do, and there's other solutions to this. I'm using the simplest is, is for iTunes. We have a separate account just for iTunes. So if you want to go into iTunes, that you go into the iTunes user account. And that is the one connected to the Drobo FS that has the big monster library on it. And I haven't set that connection up on each user account to each person because in the past I've had things go wrong with that. And the easiest way, you know, the way that we're least likely to have some kind of data corruption or database problem is just to have one user account with the iTunes account and connected to one library. And I think that's kind of on Apple a little bit. That should be easier. But for now, that's my solution. So explain to me how this works when people want to sync their iPads and iPhones. They log into the iTunes account. The, so the, the iTunes user account is everybody's got that drilled into them from dad that if you want to do something with iTunes, you log out of your user account, log into the iTunes account and plug in. Is the iTunes account always on, always running in the background? So can people like wirelessly sync? Um, well, no, because we have iTunes Match, they can wirelessly pull things down from there. I wonder if you could leave the iTunes because you know how you can you can log out of an account or you can just fast user switch between accounts. I wonder yeah. if you could leave leave the iTunes account up and open fast. You, I, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know if you I, I believe I believe that started in Lion, and I I haven't tested that. I didn't. The question didn't occur to me before we started recording. But yeah, um, it's it's fine. I mean, everything works just fine as is, and especially with iTunes Match now, you can be on your iOS device. I mean, we had a bunch of kids over for Halloween evening, a bunch of teenagers in the house, and so I wanted to like play appropriate music, which 
to me was Michael Jackson's thriller, but of, of to them it was something I've never heard of before. Anyway, uh, but you know, I just open my phone and pull it down and play from my phone to the Apple TV. So, the, you know, the Mac is increasingly cut out of the circle for getting entertainment to your devices. Okay, I, I guess you know the more I think about that, the only regular reason that I have to sync to iTunes now is for podcasts because as you know I'm still stuck in the manual podcast syncing world because of my shuffle. Yeah. But everybody in your household has iOS devices. I would imagine that your kids probably aren't big podcast listeners or if they are they they're using apps like Downcast or Instacast or something like yeah, that. I I doubt my kids have ever listened to a podcast. Well, they need to subscribe to Mac Power users. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah I agree. Uh, well, also, you know, you need to get, like, sometimes getting books and movies onto your iOS devices require you to plug in or use a Wi-Fi sync. So there, there is some excuse for doing that. But um, generally, I mean, my kids love to go on iTunes, and they have playlists they like to make, and, you know, they, they're ripping CDs in all the time. So it's... Uh, there is a, a good reason to get in there, and, and we've got a, a, a solution for it. I don't think it's perfect, and I kind of blame Apple for that. I, I think Apple should make this much easier to share data. And uh, another good example is iPhoto libraries. It's crazy because all of us have cameras, and we have um, you know these, these iPhones and the other things that collect pictures. We go to a family Christmas event. Uh, we come home, everybody's got a collection of pictures they've shot, and everybody syncs it to their version of iPhoto that is, in, in essence, four different versions of iPhoto on one computer. And it's just not easy to just share that across. And I know there's some solutions for it, but they break easily. I mean, Apple should make this so it just happens. Well, I want to back up for just a minute because there are a couple of other solutions to this iTunes problem that, that also kind of lead into solutions for the iPhoto problem as well. All right, let's go. Okay. So Apple actually has a knowledge-based article. So the, the Apple proposed solution for sharing your iTunes account between multiple users on a computer without setting up a separate iTunes user folder is to simply move the iTunes music folder, you know, that iTunes folder that's inside your music folder that's inside your user folder yeah, where, where all the actual files are stored. Mm-hmm. To to move that to some place that is accessible by everybody else on the Mac. So perhaps that's, you know, if we were going to say say you had the master iTunes library in in the yeah. David Home folder, to move that iTunes library perhaps to the David Public folder, or to the root level of your hard drive. Yeah, well, I, I've I've done that already. So I I moved it. You know, because we have this awesome Drobo FS, so I just moved the whole library onto that and then um, synced it to that on the iTunes user account. The problem I have with Apple's solution is that it doesn't work 100% of the time, and when something goes wrong, it's very easy to have the database get corrupt and lose all your metadata, your star ratings, your smart playlists. And if you ever want to see, you know, experience hell on earth have three people in your house simultaneously lose all of their smart playlists that they've spent years building and see how that goes yeah i can imagine i mean i I do back it up and there's other things i do i mean it's just not it's just not seamless and it needs no it's not it's a hacky solution yeah now i've been i've been keeping my itunes um you know, we're, we're doing an ad for Drobo a little bit later. I've been keeping my iTunes uh, folder on my Drobo, and then I kind of keep my master iTunes folder 
my I, I manage my iTunes my master iTunes folders on the Drobo, which I manage through my Mac Mini, which is my server, and then I keep a smaller subset of music on my MacBook Air, just because yeah. I don't like to fill up everything on my hard drive, yeah. which I think is kind of like that solution. And I've I've never had a problem, you know, unless I've unplugged the Drobo or it's lost the network connection, I've never had a problem with it losing anything, in which case I just have to say, no, you have to go look at the Drobo. Don't look at the internal hard drive. Yeah, and you have to be careful when it does that. And I don't want this to turn into an iTunes show, but when it loses right. the Drobo, it'll start default saving stuff to the music library of that local drive. And until you tell it otherwise, it'll continue to do that. So you can end up with data in two different places, which yeah. to me is just another example of, of what's wrong with this. I think, you know, to be honest, I think the solution Apple has is we're going to move all of your stuff to the cloud, a la iTunes match everything. And you know, the Mac is just going to be another client. I think they pretty much said that outright. And that's and really the, where it needs to go with everything, isn't it? At, yeah, and in the meantime, you're just going to have to suffer through this until we get it figured out. Because at the end of the day, if everything's in the cloud, the kids could use iTunes on their computer and they could uh, have access to all the music if they wanted. And they would start filling up that music folder if they downloaded stuff, but it probably wouldn't be critical because they're not going to download you know, my 18 volumes of Thelonious Monk and I'm not going to download their 18 volumes of whatever the artist of the day is. So it'll all kind of work out. But in the meantime, it's still pretty bad. All right. Well, let's let's talk about iPhoto because there, there are a couple of hacky solutions. First off, what have you found to solve that problem? Have you found anything you like? Well, you know, I, once again, I've, I've tried with the library sharing. I mean, they have tools built in to do this stuff. Like you can do library sharing and then it goes across user accounts or across Macs in the same household. Um, what I've ultimately ended up doing is when we have the family event uh, is I collect all the pictures right there. You know, because, you know. You just have everybody hand you their data cards? Yeah, and it's not even my immediate family. It's it's everybody. Because, you know, I have a big family. We get together. The Sparks do damage when we have a holiday. You know, we get together and it's something's going to break. So so I bring my computer because I'm usually fixing or showing somebody how to fix something. And, you know, it's got the nice little SD card slot in them. The new MacBooks do. And between that and the iPhones, I can just connect up and grab pictures from everybody there. And then before we leave, I put it all on a thumb drive. And because we're a bunch of, you know, family of nerds, I share that across. So every family that leaves has a copy of everybody else's pictures. And then I have a, a master kind of aperture library. I kind of do it like iTunes. I have this master aperture library and everything goes in there. Now, I know that there are some pictures that my kids and my wife take that, that don't get to me because it's not a family event and it's just the day-to-day stuff. But they know to send me the really good ones, you know. I mean, because, you know, you take a lot of pictures. Really, there's two or three good ones. So I get routinely them emailing me or sending me a picture. Or now that we've got the uh, photo sharing with iOS 6, uh, we're doing that some as well. But all that stuff I capture, it goes into um, Aperture. Well, and that is, that, that's kind of owned by me. One of the other options is to actually create a master iPhoto, or I think you could do it with Aperture, but I, I really have only researched and played with this with iPhoto library, and move it to an external drive or disk image. And when you open iPhoto on each of the respective computers, point it to that iPhoto library, and it will use that iPhoto library. Yeah, but what happens, 
and, and we're talking about sharing one Mac right now, so this isn't going to be a problem. But what happens when you're in that iPhoto library and then somebody else tries to access it in the house at the same time? Not great things. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it just is that maybe it just gives you a conflict and says you can't get in, or maybe it allows you both in and ends up doing something really bad to the library with all your pictures in it. Pretty sure that's what happens. And all your folders and all the stuff that you spend all this time working on. So I, I just think. I know that they're, and I'm going to get emails from people saying that they're pulling this off. I mean, there's people who are doing it on a Dropbox where they put the whole library on a Dropbox. But I've, I use an SLR camera, you know, and I shoot in RAW. And then I've got these iPhones that take really big pictures. I couldn't put it all on Dropbox. So, you know, there's just not a good solution for me other than the one I'm currently using, which is there is a master user account that has access to the iTunes and the same thing for the uh, the photographs. And then I'm, I'm very careful to make sure those get backed up. Well, it's, it's the multiple people accessing it is a problem, especially if it's on an, on a offsite, offsite's the wrong word. If it's not on the actual computer, because if, if, if the database is stored on your iMac, you're not going to have the problem where multiple people are accessing it because only one person is physically sitting on your iMac. Yeah. And and that's probably the best solution is to, again, to move the iPhoto library. Um, I've seen people move it to a disk image that's stored on the iMac or, again, to a, a, a shared location that's that's on. And I'm, I'm saying iMac. It could be any computer um, that, that's on the family computer. And then everybody points their iPhoto libraries to that iPhoto database. And, and that's one way to do it. Again, the way that I do it is I, I put it on my Drovo, but uh, you know I have that luxury. I'm a household of one. I know I'm not accessing at the same place on two computers. Yeah, I mean, if you're, a, if you're in a family listening to this, there are some geeky solutions like you know using pointers and some other things to allow you to have multiple people access one library. But my advice would be your, your pictures are far too precious to play that kind of Russian roulette. And... Just take ownership of it. Have somebody in your family take ownership of it and just try and keep it consolidated to one account. And that's the only way I'm aware of to know that you are absolutely not going to lose your pictures. And this is a little bit, you know, I think Apple, again, is heading more to the cloud solution. They're starting. They're nowhere near there yet. They're starting there a little bit with the shared photo streams. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's, I'm absolutely certain that, once the bandwidth is there, once the storage is there, you're going to save your photos to the cloud, just like you're saving your iTunes match to the cloud. All of this stuff is just going to be up there. And I mean, that's their plan for you. And there'll be holdouts and people who don't want to do that, and they'll say, well, I'm just going to keep it local. But I don't think Apple is even trying to solve the problem that we're talking about on the show of consistently sharing a single library uh, across multiple users. I don't think they even care because they're pushing everything towards the cloud. Yeah, and then the last thing you can do, I'll just mention this, otherwise people will send us emails saying, oh, well, you can do this, is that you can share your iTunes library, and you can turn on sharing between your iTunes yeah. library and share it with multiple users, and yeah. they can download photos from your library. And I haven't done that in probably two years, but when I used to do it, I would run into problems, and and so that's why I stopped doing it. Yeah, see, I've never run into an issue sharing. though, and, and the sharing is really only... One way, you know, like I'll be on the same wireless network. I'll have photos that I'll want to share with my brother. So I'll say, here, I'm on it. Hop on your iPhoto and grab this album from me. Yeah. 
I guess what what I'm really thinking is I want to have a consistent way to know that I've got my pictures that I'm not going to lose them and that that they're all finding it into their way into one bucket to the best of my ability. And uh, I've done better and worse at, at that over the years. It's just, you know as the kids get older you don't take quite as many pictures, but they start to take a lot more pictures. So I think I'm kind of in worse shape the last few years than I was when they were younger. But uh, it is an interesting problem. I'm not sure how much this really falls in our show, though. I mean, we're talking about sharing a Mac. The uh, it, it, Sharing a library in iTunes or iPhoto might be something entirely different. Yeah. But I, I guess it's important because if you don't think about this question, everybody is going to have their own iPhoto library and their own. Uh, and now that you've got video going in, it could get really big really fast. All right. Well, let's. Why don't we? Are you done with iPhoto and iTunes? Yeah, I don't think there's anything I, I else feel to like, talk about. I there. feel like I really didn't solve the problem for listeners. To tell you the I truth, don't, I don't but, think there's a great solution. Yeah the um the the easiest and most risk free to my belief is to is to take ownership at, at one account for something that important and just just make it work. Okay, let's move on. Enough. Yeah. yeah let's. Let, why don't we take a break and. Calm down. Yeah, you seem very angry about the iPhoto and the iTunes. I'm, I'm not angry about it. I just, I just, you know, I don't want. I want people when they listen to get an answer, and that one, I just don't have it. Uh, but anyway, so let's talk about Drobo though, since we're already there. Yeah, we've we've talked about Drobo quite a bit, and and Drobo is 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 my storage solution of choice to to deal with a lot of these issues. To deal with where do I store my iTunes library? Where do I store my iPhoto library? Where do I store all the archives of files that I use and all of the disk images and all of that extra stuff that I just don't have room or really want to put on my MacBook Air? Where does all this stuff go? And the answer for me is it's easy. It goes on my Drobo because the Drobo is this huge pot of storage. And what is so great about the Drobo is depending on the model that you get, mine, mine's a five-bay Drobo, is you just grab SATA drives and you start shoving them in. You got a, a terabyte drive, shove it in. You got a terabyte and a half drive, shove it in. You got a three terabyte drive, shove it in. And the, the gently, gently place it in the Drobo, I guess. Um, but the Drobo will, will be very intelligent about the way you can mix and match the drives. You can mix and, mix and match the capacity. It doesn't, it, it's very intelligent about the way that it, it, it takes all these drives. It reads the data. It stripes the data across these various drives to make sure that all of your data is backed up. So that in the case that you have a single drive failure, or even if you've got your Drobo configured for dual drive redundancy, if you have a dual drive failure, that you're not going to lose a single bit of data because the Drobo's got you covered. Yeah, you know, we were talking earlier about how I've got the, you know, the master iTunes and the master Aperture library. Both of those are located on Drobo. And, you know, I trust my, I don't know what better endorsement I could give than I trust my family pictures to the device. It's just a fantastic solution. You've got two copies of the data on your Drobo. And that you know, I also go and make a, an additional copy of that on an external drive. And I save it to cloud sharing. But the the bottom line is uh, Drobo is a great solution for putting a lot of data on connected to your computer. And now they've got so many different connection methods. You can get in, you know, through Thunderbolt, you can get in through Ethernet. Uh, now they've got the Drobo Mini coming out, which if you load up with the SSDs, is just like screaming fast. Yeah, there's the, a lot there's the a new- lot of Drobo to go around. The, the, they've got Drobos pretty much at every price point for every budget. 
um, and, and for every need. So the new Thunderbolt products especially are, are very interesting. They've got the Drobo Mini, which is small. It's portable. It uses the 2.5-inch drives as opposed to 3.5-inch drives, and you can load it up with SSD or different size drives. This is great if you're a road warrior. If you're someone who does video editing on the go and you need a ton of storage, but you also need data redundancy, you're going to be able to grab that Drobo Mini, throw it in a bag, and take it with you and get some work done. Um, but if you need a powerhouse of storage that is really fast and you just something that you can pack a ton of data in, uh, you can check out the Drobo 5D, uh, which which has a Thunderbolt connection, and you, Thunderbolt and USB 3.0 connection that you can connect to any of these latest generations Macs, uh, Macs and that thing is just screaming fast. Yeah, that's nice. That is really nice. So, so, so go check out Drobo. And if you want to get fast, reliable storage, Drobo is the answer. They've got a little configurator there so you can figure out how much space you can get on. You can mix and match drives like Katie was saying. So figure out what drives you have in a drawer somewhere and just put them in the website and see what it looks like for you. And uh, let them know you heard about them from us. Yep. You can find more information over at Drobo.com. And thanks to them for their continued support of the show. All right, we've, we've talked a lot about how you can help people get access and how people can get access to data on your Mac. Why don't we talk a little bit about limiting access to data? Because that is one of the main reasons why you have separate user accounts on your Mac is because maybe you don't want people either to access your data on the Mac or maybe you want to be able to set up certain limits to accessing things on your Mac. You know, as much as I'm giving Apple a hard time about this photo and music sharing, I think they've really done a good job with parental controls on OS 10. Have you ever gone in and fiddled with that? Uh, I actually have. I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't have a, a reason to use them on a day-to-day basis, but they're pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot you can do with it. And it's so easy for kids to get in trouble on the Internet anymore and without them trying to do anything wrong themselves. I mean, just doing a simple Internet search, everybody listening to this knows it's just, you can get into a lot of trouble. And, you know, kids don't really know how to regulate themselves. Frankly, a lot of adults don't know how to regulate themselves. So uh, setting up a parental controls can let you do that. You can figure out, you know, certain hours they're on the computer. Um, and as a parent, I, I really appreciate all the effort that went into this. So have you, so you've never set one up then, have you? I've set some up for other people. Okay. Yeah. So then you yeah. you know it's like so not only can you control uh, the web usage, which is what you initially think of with parental controls. You want to have a list of websites they can't go to, or you know, kind of nannyware built in. But there's also applications you may not want them in, or you can set time limits. You can say you know at eight p.m. the computer is no longer useful to you. Um, you can limit the number of people they can communicate with. Um, and I, I grant that this is not something where you can just still let your kids go free. I mean, this is not an excuse or to get you out of parenting. As a parent, you need to be watching. You know, our family iMac at my house is in our living room. It's not in somebody's bedroom. It's downstairs where every when my kids are on it, I'm walking or my wife are walking behind them all the time, just doing our business around the house. So we're always aware of what's going on on the computer. Yeah, that's that's really the best way, I think, to but, monitor that. But at the same time, parental controls make a lot of sense. And uh, my kids are getting older now. Uh, my youngest just turned 11, and I'm starting to dial back the parental controls because she needs to start, you know, 
you know, she's going to have to learn to, to govern herself a little bit. But I still like a lot of the stuff that we've got in here. You can limit profanity. You can put time limits. So when you sit down, there's, you know, basically a stopwatch running when you sit down to use it. You can limit the people. Uh, as a parent, I can view her activity later. And I know this starts to get creepy, but, you know, it's a dangerous world out there. And I don't want my kids exposed to it until they're ready to deal with it. One of the things that I like about the way that Apple has limit, implemented their parental controls is that there is is such great um, risk of false positives on parental controls. They they tend to be too restrictive sometimes. Yeah. So very legitimate sites that people need to access for very legitimate purposes or people that they need to be able to communicate with. I mean, it tends to block a lot of things by default just because parental controls aren't very useful unless they, you know, don't block things. But it has a way that the kids can actually request, hey, I'd like to access this site for this reason, or hey, I'd like to communicate with this person, that they can actually send an email to you to request access for this, and then you can allow or deny it, and then you can actually configure the parental controls remotely to set that up. Yeah. And and you can even do it from a different Mac. Right. It's it's pretty nice. And as the kids get older, you can start to dial them back. I if you've got little kids in the house, just take a minute and and set those up. Cuz they're going to be fascinated with the computer and let's make sure it's a good experience for them. Well, and even if you don't have kids in the house, again, if if you've got a a machine but your grandkids come to visit for the summer or or people are around occasionally, maybe you want to set up a user account for kids even if it doesn't get used but a couple of times a year, and set up some parental controls on it just to keep people from getting into trouble. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, Another thing that you can do to limit access, although it's not related to built-in parental controls, and I'll just mention it, is we've talked – I think we've had a whole episode about OpenDNS, and I I did a screencast about it. We'll put a link in the show notes for it. But I use OpenDNS on my own network and have set up filters on that – just because, number one, I don't want to accidentally stumble against something that I don't want. And if I have guests or other people here using my Wi-Fi, there are certain things that I don't want to happen on the Wi-Fi that I pay for. Yeah, so. and you, you don't want that stuff associated with you at all. Exactly. You know, I think I've I've uh, limited, you know, peer-to-peer file sharing and, and certain types of sites and other stuff. And you can have, again, false positives. You can run into to problems with it, in which case you can go in and whitelist things. But I don't think I've had that problem. And, you know, I've just kind of taken the kind of stance that there are certain things that, you know, I don't want on my network. And this is my network. So, yeah. Sorry if you're a house guest. And so we talked about Open DNS in way back in show 17. We had George Starcher on who kind of introduced us all to it. And then you also did a screencast. I'm going to have to find that. I'll put it in the show notes. And I think we might have talked about it again in one of our security shows. I, I like OpenDNS a lot. I know Google has their own competing DNS product, but I think the Google product is just pure DNS, whereas OpenDNS has some more bells and whistles. Yeah. Well, and it's just worked for me so long. I know when uh, Google's DNS first came out, everybody was testing the speed against them, but I, I find OpenDNS works just fine. All right, so that's something else you can do. Although, uh, uh, and then you can also do just permissions, and that's where you do sharing in the uh, the networking preference pane. Yeah, um, and then lastly, you can set up some sharing of your other devices on on your network. 
Um, I, now, you've got a newer Airport Express, I, I think, because you were having some internet issues and you told me you ended up having to go out and buy a new base station. So have you set up a guest network at your house? I have not. Yeah, the newer Airport Express, I'm sorry, Airport Extremes, and I think maybe even the newest Expresses now, too, are pretty full functional. But the newer Airport ex, airport Base Stations will allow you to set up a guest network. Um, and the guest network is really cool because it basically sets up a separate segregated network uh, that although it's coming from your same router and it's coming off of your, your internet service, it really doesn't allow the guests on your network to interact with anything else on your network. And that can have some benefits. It can have some downfalls too, but it can have some benefits. Yeah. I, I was once sitting in a deposition and uh, my client got onto the other lawyer's file server because <laughs> he had open internet. I said, what are you doing? And he says, it looks like a, a file server. And I looked at it and I immediately stopped him and informed the other attorney that his files were available. And the guy just turned white as a sheet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think he could have used a guest network. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got one set up in our office and, and it's, you know, our IT guys had to come down and configure it and it required separate equipment. But but the Apple routers make it very easy. You, you don't have to have separate equipment. All that requires is checking a box to say, yes, please set up a guest network. It can have a separate password. So if you have, um, you, you can have completely separate passwords for your guest network and for your primary network. You know, David, I know you and I have Drobos on our, on our networks, um, yeah. although they have their own security and sharing settings built in, it just makes me a little feel a little more secure to know that there's that extra layer of protection between them. I know that my guests can't get onto my Drobo. I know that my guests can't get onto um, my air disc that's built into my time capsule. I know they can't get into my time capsule backups or any other USB devices that are plugged into those. Um, it, it just makes me feel better to know that. The one downside, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, or I'll, if not, I'll, I'll throw it out to our listeners and hope that somebody else can write, is that occasionally I will have guests. I, I do have my printer set up to print through an airport express that is not my main base station. It's a separate airport express because my printer's in a different room. It's actually in the closet of my office, whereas my, my main base station is is in my living room, more centrally located in my house. And I have had occasion where my guests need to print something. If someone's coming to stay with me and then they've got to fly out, they want to print their boarding passes, it would be nice if I could be able to share a printer with my guests. But right now, I haven't been able to find a way to share the printer that's on my primary network with my guest network. I think it's kind of an either or. So if if you have a solution or if anybody else has a solution, I'd be all ears. Yeah, I, I don't think that's possible. They'd have to be on the network with the printer to get access to it. Yeah, and I really don't want to buy a second printer just so somebody can print. And, yeah. and that's again, that's the case where I say, just go log onto my computer and print your boarding pass. Yeah, you know, I have to admit, I, we we do have friends that have access to our wireless network, and I give them the password. I, I've just never really worried about them getting into this stuff. But it's a pretty small list of people, and they're they're very you know intimate friends and family. The, you know, it's the more we get through the show, the more I think that this is a another transitory period. As you know, the the mobile devices become more useful to us and more powerful. Uh, people coming to visit you are just going to do their own thing with their iPads or their whatever the tablet of the day is. Well, you sure as heck better have Wi-Fi for them. Yeah. 
Oh, oh, really? I don't know. In a couple of years, maybe not. Maybe not. That's true. I can tell you right now, my uh, Verizon LTE iPad is faster than my home Wi-Fi. Well, they're still bandwidth caps. So when I come visit, yeah. I want to be on your Wi-Fi network. Yeah, okay. So, so you, maybe you, you will set up a guest network before then. <laughs> I'd let you into the to the network, Katie. All right, all right. All right, well, there's an idea. So at the end of the day, what have I really done for you in this show other than tell you that you can't share photos and music very well? Uh, and I, that I think everybody that, needs to have a separate user account on your computer. Yeah, well, I, I think that that Apple has done a, a good job with the idea of separate user accounts on the Mac. I think that clearly the company and just the technology in general is heading in the direction away from shared accounts as we move towards mobile devices. So I don't think it's going to get a whole lot better with the problems we've identified. Uh, there are solutions that are very complex and some that are very simple, but sort of inconvenient. And you're just going to have to make your own decision about that. Yeah. All right, well, do we have time for our last sponsor? And then we've got a stack of feedback. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, our last sponsor for this episode is Pixelmator. And Pixelmator is the beautifully designed, easy-to-use, fast and powerful image editor for the Mac. And I have been using Pixelmator all the time recently. I have come across this treasure trove of, of slides that we've been getting scanned recently. My grandmother has over a thousand slides that we found up in a closet of all of her travels. And she and my grandpa just traveled around the world extensively. Um, and we found all of these slides and we took them to a local photo place and, and got them all scanned. And I got them back on a, a DVD a month or two ago. And I've been going through and, and making photo books and iPhoto. But as you can imagine, a lot of these photos were taken 50 and 60 years ago. And I think being in slide form helped preserve them somewhat, but they're still, you know, not the best photos and not the best quality. And some of them have aged somewhat. And there's there's really only so much that you can do with the, the built-in tools in iPhoto. You know, you can crop and maybe take out a, a little blemish here or there. But I've been using Pixelmator extensively. In fact, what I've done is I've just set it as the default photo editor in iPhoto and I can I can really go in and clean up those images and enhance the the tones and 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 correct do, do, color correction is the biggest thing I'm doing because you know how these these images tend to lose their color. Yeah, um, I bet you could. I bet you'll experience some scratches too on those slides. That's right? a lot of scratches. Yeah, and uh, and Pixelmator does a really good job with scratches. Um, so you can do all kinds of things. I mean, Pixelmator is a, a fully fledged image editor for the Mac that you can deal with layers. They've got over 40 tools for selecting, cropping, painting, retouching, measuring, and navigating your photos. Um, they've got over 15 color correction tools, which like I said, I've been, I've been using quite a bit and over 150 different filters. Now I'm not doing so much adjusting of the image and the size and resolution, but you certainly can do that. In fact, I may at some point right now, I'm just throwing these into books, but I, I may blow some of these up or, and, and do some prints and other things with them. Um, but but you can do all kinds of things with with Pixelmator, and the other thing that I've been doing a lot, although not with this particular set of image, is is they've got some great export options if you want to export images for the web. I, I do that all the time with with various websites. 
Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, it's an application built for the Mac. So it takes advantage of all the goodness that is OS X's graphics tools. Uh, it does a lot of this stuff off your graphics chip as opposed to your main CPU. So it, it does these filters very quickly. And it's just $30, $29.99. And you've got a really powerful image editor. I Every image I put in my books goes through Pixelmator. You know, when I, any type of adjustment I make is just done there. It's so easy. And another thing I would suggest you do, uh, because you should go buy this application, when you get it, you're going to open it up and feel overwhelmed because you've never worked with high-end graphics stuff. Go to pixelmator.com slash tutorials. And every time I go there, there's new movies showing you how to do really simple uh, modifications to your images to make them look gorgeous. And and anybody can do it. This is enabling for you. So go check it out. And it, it ties right into iPhoto or Aperture. So if you, whatever your photo management application of choice is, you can get right into it. Uh, I could talk for a long time about Pixelmator because I just love it and use it all the time. Uh, you can find more information about Pixelmator over at pixelmator.com or, or just go pick it up over on the Mac App Store. Yeah. Again, let them know you heard from us. That always helps. Thank you to Pixelmator for their continued support of the show. All right. You want to do some feedback? Yeah, let's do some feedback. Um, let's start with Robin wrote in. And, um, uh, you know, we've been talking about the virtues of plain text. And Robin said that they used Word and have hundreds of files uh, dating back to the mid-1990s. And still, they still have Word 2008. But when they double click on the old Word, you know, 5.1 files, um, you know, they they have to open them through Word and they just want to get rid of Word. So what is the easiest way to batch convert all of these old files into text or even PDF files and just get out of Word altogether? Now, my initial recommendation was going to be MacLink Plus because I've used that before to to get out of some old file formats. I used that years ago when I was trying to convert the last of the AppleWorks files that I found. But I have since found out, and Ron pointed out, that this has not been updated to work with Mountain Lion, and apparently it has been abandoned. So, oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder if you could generate an automator script to do this. I was thinking, well, I, I'm pretty sure you could do an automator script to batch convert them to PDF, although I'm not sure getting them into PDF would be the long-term solution. I, I think you'd probably, in a perfect world, rather have them in text or something. Well, you know, our friend Ben Waldy, who did this show with us about automator, he wrote the automator scripts for um, for Microsoft, uh, for the Office suite. That's right. So um, the, you've got the scripts for built in already for Microsoft uh, Word. And I'm just looking at this quickly as we go. Uh, and then he also wrote, and he's got on the Mac App Store a set of text um, scripts for uh, Automator as well. So there's things to do here. Uh, whether or not you've got the necessary Lego pieces to, number one, open the file. Number two, select the text and then export it to a text file. I'm not sure whether or not that's there or not. And I would have to look into it deeper. But if, I think, Robin, where I would start is I would look seriously at Automator as a solution. And I may even send an email off to Ben Waldy uh, because he's a really smart guy and he may have some ideas for that as well. And Heck, if you've he got, may have written something already for this. Yeah, it's possible. And if it's, if it's a work-related thing and you've got thousands of files, it may be worth paying a professional to write an Apple script to do that for you because I'm almost certain you could lick that with some Apple script. 
I mean, the other solution is, you know, brute force is to open the file, select all, which is command A, then, you know, paste it somewhere. As like into a text editor. Yeah, or or you could get an older version of the OS running on an older computer and try the MacLink Plus route. Yeah. Well, there's some ideas. Yeah. Um, we we also got an email from Vlad who pointed out. You know, we talked about our favorite uh, Daisy Disk again uh, on the on the last show where we were talking. Um, gosh, what were we talking about on the last show? Uh, we were just talking about. Um, uh, speeding up your Mac. Speeding and up we're your talking Mac. About that's right. Using that's Daisy right. Disk to go through and clear out your drive. Yeah, and he pointed out that you know, just to be aware, although I love buying software from the Mac App Store, that there are two important distinctions between the Mac App Store version of Daisy Disk and the version that you can buy from the developer directly. Because as you know, when you put stuff in the Mac App Store, it has to be sandboxed and you have to follow Apple rules. So the two main differences is the Mac App Store version doesn't have a scan as administrative feature. Um, and this feature doesn't allow you to scan. Uh, well, the scan as administrative feature allows you to scan um, certain parts of your disk that you perhaps wouldn't otherwise be able to do as just a user. So you can scan inside other user folders and and see other things that are taking up disk space that may not be within your permissions, which I guess kind of makes sense based on the type of show that we're doing today. Yeah. Um, And the other feature that is not in the Mac's App Store version is a feature called Scan Hidden Disk Space. And sometimes what, and I didn't even know about this, but but sometimes the amount of used disk space, it may appear to be greater than the total size of the scanned files. And that's because there's some invisible files for um, system overhead and spotlight indexes and things like that um, that aren't shown, that, that are hidden. Yeah. And, and um, the regular version of uh, Daisy Disk can, can do that. So those are two important distinctions to know about. Personally, I, I haven't run up against a big problem with this. Again, probably because I'm the only user, or I'm the primary user on my MacBook Air, so all the files are really under my user account. Yeah. And deleting hidden files is problematic, usually. Yeah, you can get into trouble with some of this stuff. So if you really know what you're doing and you want to go that route, that's fine. I, I bought it in the App Store, and I'm okay with that purchase. I'm not... I don't see myself going back and buying the uh, the non-App Store version. But thanks, Vlad, for the information, and we're glad to share it out. Yep. Uh, we, al- we also heard uh, from Robert talking about how, you know, we talked about using LaunchBar to be a clipboard manager, and he talked about the merits of Keyboard Maestro. And uh, we did a show on Keyboard Maestro uh, back in the day. I guess that was a, with, probably uh, over a year. Mac Drifter, with Mac Drifter, right? Yeah, with, with Gabe Weatherhead, yeah. Gabe is a really smart guy at MacDrifter.com, I believe, and uh, you can go check him out. And there's several people on the internet writing a lot about Keyboard Maestro, and it really is a fascinating application. So go back and listen to the show if you're interested in it. But uh, everything Robert said is right, that if you use Keyboard Maestro, you do have some additional tools. Uh, uh, It keeps stuff, uh, it keeps something like 100 items on the list. It lets you favorite items if you want them to stay there. So if you've got things you want to use over and over again, um, it's generally more powerful than LaunchBar's clipboard manager. Uh, That being said, uh, the the LaunchBar manager works pretty good for me. Uh, Keyboard Maestro is one of those applications that I use it, but not nearly to the extent I probably should. How about yourself? Are you are you still finding yourself using Keyboard Maestro a lot? 
not as much. I use it for a few specific things, but it's I, I have it running on my Mac Mini in the background to do some tasks, but not all the time on my primary Mac. It, it's remarkably powerful. If you go back and listen to that show, if you haven't heard of Keyboard Maestro before, go check it out because uh, it's one of those things that I constantly have on OmniFocus to go back and add some scripts that I've seen that I like, and I just never seem to be able to find the time to do it. But like even just doing simple things like keeping email running on my Mac in case somebody comes and like flips it off, I, it, it does that for me. And there's it, that's just scratching the surface. I mean, I don't use Keyboard Maestro nearly to the extent I could. All right. Well, does that wrap us up? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Let me. See. I was just going to look and see what show that is, but I, I'll have it in the show notes. I don't want to hold everybody up. All right, sounds good. Well, you can find links to that Keyboard Maestro show and everything else that we talked about in our show notes. You can find those at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Uh, and don't forget, I think we're going to try to record an After Dark after this, so check the After Dark page too. Yeah. Um, you can contact us at uh, MacPowerUsers.com. You can send an email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can find us on Twitter. We are at MacPowerUsers. And Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Mac Sparky. Yes, and David and I both are at those same usernames in app.net as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we love iTunes comments, so thank you for those. And thanks to our sponsors for the show. It's going to be Pixelmator, uh, Gazelle, and Drobo. Yeah, and uh, for the next show, we're going to have Glenn Fleischman in, who's a uh, writer. Uh, excuse me, Jeopardy champion. Yes. Glenn Fleischman. Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, his workflows and becoming a uh, Jeopardy champion, in addition to some of the amazing stuff he's doing as a writer and just a, a Mac pundit. Is that a good term for Glenn? Yeah, it's a good term. I think he almost goes beyond that. Glenn, he writes for The Economist. He's just a really smart guy. And. He's got some great ideas about how to get work done on his Mac. So come listen to us next week, and we're looking forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.